judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. Unless there is any, any more questions, we have to find an argument in this case. Right? All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention. Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. Recording live, I'm Will Bode. And I'm Dan Epps. Where are we, Will? St. Louis, I think. Yeah, we are doing our, I think this is our fourth live show, and it's at my home institution, Washington University School of Law here in St. Louis. We have a good turnout. Can the folks in the audience make clear that it's a good turnout? Yeah. Um, Dare I say this is a better turnout than we had during our one live show at the University of Chicago. Fair enough. <laughs> Which we're, we were in a, a much smaller room. We rated the smallest classroom in the building uh, for that event, but maybe someday we will be promoted. So you were here, courtesy of our uh, Federalist Society. So uh, thank you for inviting, uh, inviting Will here. Apparently it's because uh, we needed you to stop the indoctrination of the students into you know, mushy living constitutionalism and all the things you're here to stop. I do my best. Okay. So a few things to uh, talk about today. The first thing we want to do, which would be kind of fun, we normally begin with some listener feedback dealing with the things that people wish we had said previous time. And we often do that, quote emails, sometimes we get voicemails, sometimes we get songs. But today we're going to do that live. We have my colleague, Professor Ron Levin, who is maybe our most faithful listener, certainly our most faithful corrector (laughs) on the show. And rather than pen a long missive that we can ignore... He's coming up here to uh, give us some thoughts that we will respond to in, in real time. So kind of intimidated by this. Yeah. So thank you, uh, gentlemen uh, and, and uh, members of the audience. I'm glad to be able to make a guest appearance on this podcast, which I do listen to regularly and probably don't offer corrections on as often as I, as you suggest or as I might. Only every other episode. Only every other episode. Uh, but I am here to respond to a couple comments that were made in the last podcast for those of you who uh, might have missed it. They were discussing uh, the validity of nationwide injunctions and a vacatur under the Administrative Procedure Act, a topic on which I have recently completed a manuscript, which will soon appear in the Notre Dame Law Review. They summarized my views there, and they left me relatively little space to correct errors because they were mostly accurate about uh, what I said. And, and there isn't much that I can say by way of, of uh, taking issue with them. I, there's one point that I want to make for members of the audience, listening audience and otherwise, who are the Supreme Court mavens uh, and want to know where all the cases stand. The question that we were debating is now before the Supreme Court in U.S. versus Texas, and the host said, well, the court may not reach that issue at all in U.S. v. Texas because there's a standing issue, there's a merits issue that might resolve the case otherwise. I'm going to go a little further out on the limb than they did and predict the court will not decide this issue in U.S. v. Texas because we have not only those issues, but there are a few other reasons why the court I think is unlikely to reach the issue. One is that they could, even if they decide that, that the, uh, the, the challengers have standing and they win on the merits, there is a provision in, in the Immigration Act, Section 1252, which provides 
a narrower ground on which they could decide the remedy question. There were a lot of questions about 1252 during the oral argument, and I think the court anticipates the possibility that they could decide the remedies issue under that statute rather than something else. And besides that, uh, some of the justices who weren't very comfortable with where the discussion was going said, well, the vacatur issue wasn't really within the questions presented, and the briefing was very scanty, so I'm not very comfortable with that. Putting all that together, I think the court won't decide the case, but it wouldn't surprise me if concurring opinions or dissenting opinions got into the subject. That's entirely possible. Uh, uh, over and above that, I guess if I want to give some feedback, I would respond to some of the comments Will made about how to interpret the APA generally, the Administrative Procedure Act. Because I have argued in my scholarship that the APA is routinely construed in an evolving manner that many of the interpretations the Supreme Court has adopted are far removed from uh, what Congress had in mind when they passed this statute in 1946. And I have taken the position that that is a, a good and solid thing. It doesn't accord with orthodox textualism in many cases uh, or originalism, but it is a necessary adaptation to changing realities in the administrative state, and particularly the rise of rulemaking as a decision-making mechanism has given rise to an impetus to find ways to control rulemaking in the courts. They have done that by stepping up the level of review so that they uh, give a hard look to what the agency said, that wasn't originally contemplated. They expect uh, the facts that the agency relies on to be supported by a contemporaneous record. That wasn't the original concept. And more relevant to, to this, if the rule is judged to be illegal, courts now will order that the rule itself be vacated, or they often will order that the rule itself be wiped off the books. That was not readily foreseen at the outset of the, uh, of the APA, largely because rulemaking wasn't used. There were some precedents behind it, but it wasn't the, it wasn't the norm. But it's, it's emerged as a, as a credible alternative now because it had to be, and that's been my, my view. And so it's a decidedly unoriginalist take, and I'm here to throw that out there and invite critical feedback from, from the host if he wants to give any. I'm curious about that too, Will. And this is a question about which I don't have strong priors. I'm not an administrative law person so much. I am curious about you know the extent to which you think there is an emerging consensus in favor of a more kind of formalist uh, APA textualism, originalism. It, it seems like that was not necessarily originally the doctrinaire uh, uh, conservative position. You know, Adrian Vermeule uh, on Twitter the other day quoted. Justice Scalia, um, as saying, it is generally acknowledged that the only responsible judicial attitude towards the APA is one of benign disregard. That is one provision of the APA. Yes, one particular provision of the APA. I think his views may have evolved, uh, but you know, he, he didn't necessarily approach administrative law cases from the perspective of let's go back to first principles. He was, you know, willing to kind of interpret uh, things using the kind of evolving set of common law type principles that that, that emerged. Where are we on that? Where is the, the official 
legal conservative trademark uh, <laughs> view on that. We'll be putting out a position paper soon. <laughs> so Justice Scalia was a special case because he was an administrative law professor before he was a judge or a justice. And so some of this is our writings he had, you know, in his role as a scholar, in his role as editor of Regulation Magazine. And he did, ha- he had this kind of legal realist deregulation hat sometimes when he talked to the DC Circuit that was different from his formalist, how would I actually decide these cases as a judge hat? Although then as a judge, they sometimes came together. And he sometimes, you know, vindicated some of his pre- previous scholarly views. And do you think Justice Scalia himself evolved? You know, he started out as a strong Chevron defender. And I think by the end of his uh, career in life was probably on the verge of, you know, recanting that and trying to overrule Chevron. So do you think there's more, you know, now when, when Ron says the thing he says, you know, the possibility of this podcast will be quoted in a brief by a state on the other side of the APA case increases. And somebody's saying, yes, it's all evolved, but isn't that a, isn't that a bad thing? And so, I, you know, that said, this is not an area that, in all these kinds of the statute has gotten outside of its original bounds, the court never has occasion to like hear all those things at once to issue a sort of general opinion about here are the eight ways in which administrative law has gone, has gone awry. And here's how we're going to sort of get into them. So, you know, will they reconsider Chevron? And when they do, will they talk in part about how Chevron is not faithful to the original meaning of the APA? You know, yes. Will they reconsider hard look review? I'm less sure. Maybe actually, but I didn't do some of that. I do think there's one divide, which we mentioned on the last show, but I think it's going to be a consistent divide here, which is between the judges who were D.C. Circuit judges and did this for a long time and the judges who didn't. I think just as a practical matter, it's a much heavier lift to go to a justice and say, for 15 years, you were violating the law because you weren't a good enough uh, statutory interpreter. You didn't think about these things for first principles. Even though as a lower court judge, that's fine. That's what you're supposed to do. I just think that's well, a, they, they would have just been following precedent, though. Right. No, I, th- I just still think it's a, heavy, it's a heavy lift. It goes back to the 19th century when there were these debates about the legitimacy of territorial and various state governments. There's a concurring opinion by Justice Catrone where the question of the territorial government comes up. And he'd been a territorial judge uh, as a federal judge for like 10 years. And he said, you know, wow, you're telling me that all those death sentences I ordered as a territorial judge were, were ultra virus? That's just, <laughs> that's just too much for me to, to consider. And it's not quite the same, but I think there's some of that going on. There is one um, comment by Justice Scalia that I think is particularly relevant to this discussion. It's really by Professor Scalia in a very well-known article he wrote about the Vermont Yankee case in 1977. And he said that some of the innovations that the courts have brought about in the rulemaking area can be understood as restoring the original APA settlement rather than departing from it. Originally, agencies made their policy decisions mainly through adjudication, and the courts were vigilant about riding herd on agencies that might get out of line. And then when rulemaking emerged as, uh, as an alternative, some of the innovations on rulemaking served the same function. And and Justice Scalia was not very comfortable with that because it it is judicial creativity of a level that he he normally uh, would have some qualms about. But he says, you know, maybe realistically that's just the way it has to be under these circumstances. You know, this was an old argument in defense of the legislative veto that the court held unconstitutional 30 years ago. There was a sort of a classic argument for it that we now let the let Congress delegate to agencies much more power than we, than we should have originally. And the legislative veto, the argument went, is just restoring the original constitutional design. It's just a way of clawing back power from the executive agencies. And there's something kind of 
potentially perverse about letting Congress, you know, give the executive branch a huge amount of power and then not letting Congress supervise it. And, you know, that argument didn't fly in the legislative veto case. Everybody just struck it down. And so we now have a much less supervised executive. But there are times it does. And Justice, Justice Scalia was a leading at opponent of the legislative veto in those days. But the, the view that you described was, was really well articulated by Justice White in his dissent in the Chada case. And it's, a, it's a wonderful dissent, uh, even though he didn't get any votes besides his own. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank Professor Levin for joining us. We're about to talk about something else you know about, and so it's very imperative we get you off the stage so you can't issue further corrections. All right. Uh, and have so to I'll, wait I'll do that episode. by email. Yes. Uh, or a voicemail. I've been, I've been begging you to leave a voicemail. I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, in, uh, in song format? So watch for it. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen, very much for letting me join you. Dan, I, I come to your home turf, and you repay me by ambushing us with our biggest critic. Well, you know, uh, Professor Levin is, uh, I think, still the faculty advisor to the Federal Society. Am I, am I correct about that? So he was taking his prerogative. Fair enough. As ambushes go, that could have been, that could have been a lot worse. Yeah. <laughs> I was lying awake at night worrying about what was going to happen. So this is normally the time when we would go on and just talk about other kind of Supreme Court news. There really hasn't been much since the last time. We recorded uh, no opinions, no orders of note, you know, shocking leaks, revelations. I got nothing. You got anything? No. Okay. So I guess we actually have to talk about the law. And we're going to talk about, I think, an issue that, that hopefully is, is near and dear to the hearts of some folks here, which is uh, student loans and student loan cancellation. So do we have uh, people here who have uh, student loans that might have been, that might be subject to cancellation under President Biden's recent uh, executive order purporting to uh, issue the cancellation of a certain amount of student debt. Anybody subject to that? Okay, make some noise, yeah. Okay. Um, so this has real stakes. Are you going to take money away from these folks? <laughs> I, I don't have any power, <laughs> uh, but I'm on their side. Okay. Sort of. Okay, so we're talking about two related cases that are going to be argued in a couple weeks, Department of Education versus Brown and uh, Biden versus uh, Nebraska, challenging this executive action um, that President Biden took through a somewhat you know, roundabout statutory means that we're going to talk about purporting to provide a certain amount of cancellation of student loan uh, debt. And you know, as happens these days, whenever a president does something kind of bold using executive power, there's a bunch of lawsuits filed by, you know, people on the other political side. And this, this, you know, this happens no matter who the president is. And then, you know, that creates these standoffs in the courts that are going to happen. So that happened here. We had uh, two cases challenging this executive order. Can we break down what the two cases are? So we've got the, the Department of Education versus Brown. So that, yeah, so there are two separate lawsuits, one filed in the Fifth Circuit by people, one filed in the Eighth Circuit by states. The lawsuit filed in the Fifth Circuit by people is Brown, Ms. Meyer Brown, and another person uh, whose name I'm forgetting, who complain essentially that they also would like student loan relief, and therefore nobody should get it. So they complain that the... Because they feel left out. Yeah. That they were excluded from the parameters of the program and believe that if the program had gone through notice and comment under a different statutory authority and under a different path, then maybe they would have been included. So, and 
as people probably know from existing in the world, this sort of the question of whether the administration would forgive student loans and if so, who and under what authority and how has something that's been sort of been debated and ping ponged a lot in different ways. And then even once the administration announced its program, it's changed several times as people challenged it. The administration would find a way to change the program to deny those people standing so that they could, you know, try again. So it's not a silly point to say, like, we'd like to have the another round of this. But that's the that's the core claim. A district judge in the Northern District of Texas awarded them relief, um, and the Fifth Circuit did not stay it. And so the, Fifth, the Supreme Court has taken that case. They and just, this is sort of expedited, right? The court is, is doing this. This uh, is the lightning docket. Yeah, but, but I think, which I think is good, right? I mean, I think that in this case, sometimes it's fair to criticize the court for, for rushing to intervene. Uh, here, it seems better for everybody to get this issue resolved. No, quickly. this is not good. No? Okay. No. <laughs> I mean, if the lower courts are going to grant nationwide relief against a federal program as soon as it happens, then it is good for the Supreme Court to decide whether that is what should happen. But there was a time, I'm old enough to remember, when administrations did things that were arguably unlawful, and it just kind of bubbled up through the circuits for several years. And the Supreme Court weighed in after a couple of years and never had time to take a breath. And I think that was good for everybody. And, and what do you think is different uh, now? Is that the, the circuit courts are, are more willing to uphold these kinds of injunctions? Or that district courts are more eager to grant them both. District courts are more district courts grant relief more readily, and then the circuit courts uphold them. And you know, I guess sort of relatedly, and then the government doesn't take that line down, and that constellation of factors. Okay, and th- we're going a little bit down a rabbit hole here, but this is interesting. Why? Why is that better? Why is it better to let it wait for a few years? You think the circuit courts will come up with better arguments that the Supreme Court will want to learn from? Some of the times, the cases just go away. Sometimes we just get get time to so not everything has to be on the docket right away. So, and sometimes maybe it's the circuit courts, maybe it's circumstances, maybe it's just the ability to reflect. But having a couple of years to kind of sit with and contemplate a big issue, a couple of years, two years at least between the enactment of the Affordable Care Act and the court finally confronting it, I think was probably good. Better than if that had been decided on day seven or something. Don't you think here it might be complicated to have, you know, this go into effect, you know, have a bunch of people, I guess, ostensibly relieved of their student debt burdens and then maybe have those reinstated three years later? I mean, yes. And that's something the court would have to think about when it got the case, when it thought about what kind of relief it wanted to issue and who it wanted to let challenge it. But also, I, I do worry about the incentives on the political side. So there are, there's a cynical theory out there. I'm not saying I believe this theory, but there's a cynical theory out there that administration does these things knowing full well the Supreme Court is going to rule five to four or six to three if they're unlawful and thinking, that's fine. You know, I mean, they'd rather win than lose, I think. But honestly, losing is probably better for them politically because they don't actually have to pay out and deal with the consequences (laughs) and get to complain about the court. Yeah. And you'd much rather have that happen fast than slow. Like if you're going to get. I mean, if you're going to lose and then try to rail against the court, you want to get all your losses during your presidential term before re-election as much as possible so you can, you know, build up your stock of grievances. Yeah. Although uh, that's interesting. It actually does point me towards one small piece of Supreme Court-related news, which is the State of the Union. Uh, Some of the justices attended the State of the Union. Some didn't. President Biden does not really – has not used the State of the Unions to – make a big statement about the court. He's, he doesn't seem as interested in running against the court as some, you know, hypothetical democratic presidents might be. I don't know whether that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying I don't think you're right about that. The cynical theory. I think that, that some of those considerations must come into play, but it does seem like this administration is maybe not as interested in actually using that politically. 
Yeah, that could be. I mean, we'll see. We'll see what the conversation is like uh, next year. Certainly, you know, president is an incredibly he's a Washington insider who is very nice people to their faces. So with the Supreme Court sitting there, he was not going to be the one to denounce them and then cause them to, you know, mouth off and get caught on camera and get in trouble. He instead like went up to them and you know greeted them very kindly. And, that, that's fair, although he also has, you know, kind of thrown cold water on the idea of Supreme Court reform. He had this commission that you were on that basically seemed designed to write a long book report and then go away. It was a good book report, uh, but... I'm glad we went away. Yeah. That, was, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Should so, I continue the facts? Uh, yeah, we got a little bit, <laughs> a little right. bit off track. All right. The other lawsuit filed by the states was filed here in the Eastern District of Missouri on behalf of Nebraska and a coalition of states... Missouri actually being the most important one, it's going to turn out. And so they claim standing not as individuals, but as as sovereigns with a range of arguments that we'll talk about in a minute about why this the program affects them and their operations. They lost in the district court. So the district court did not grant relief. And then on appeal, first sort of before appeal, the Eighth Circuit granted a kind of like temporary nationwide injunction pending appeal. Which was especially striking because the district court had concluded that the states didn't have standing. As we'll talk about, that seemed right to me. And initially, the Eighth Circuit granted the you know a nationwide injunction pending appeal without actually taking a position on whether there was standing. It's like there might be standing, so we're going to enjoin the whole thing, which is for law students not how you're supposed to do it if you're you know if you're not an Article III judge and can't make it up. And then they later wrote an opinion saying, okay, we've decided there is standing and. Maybe the program's unlawful, we're not sure, but but maybe. So we'll we'll grant nationwide injunction. And that is part of uh, the other case that the, the SG took up to the to go to the court. So now they're before the court, which has to decide both do any of these uh, people or states have standing to bring these challenges? And if so, is the program unlawful? Yeah. So two pretty important questions and you know, conceptually distinct, although they both have to come out one way for the challengers to win. Um, I mean, logically, in terms of the briefs, they tend to start with standing and then go to the merits uh, of the issue, whether it's unlawful. I think I wonder if here maybe we should go in the opposite order and, and talk about, uh, you know, the merits and set up the stakes and then go to the standing issue, which I think is maybe uh, more interesting. And it's it's certainly more interesting to you because you have a brief that we're going to talk about about this. So in terms of uh, the merits, so the Government here has relied on uh, something, one of these, uh, you know, wonderful statute names, uh, the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003, which just by coincidence spells out the HEROES Act that uh, provides uh, authorization for Secretary of Education to waive uh, or modify any statutory regulatory provision uh, applicable, applicable to the student financial assistance programs and that act generally is what the government is relying on here, what the president is relying on here as authority to issue this student debt cancellation. Yes. So does, does it say like the president shall have power to cancel student debt? No. What it says is that the president has, Secretary of Education has authority to waive or modify program as may be necessary to ensure that uh, affected individuals are not placed in a worse position financially in relation to their financial assistance because their status is affected individuals. Now, who are affected individuals? So again, the core idea, this came out of 9-11 and the war in Iraq. So the core idea were like deployed service members and people like that who were, you know, suddenly maybe not going to be able to make their student loan payments and they should not be placed in a worse position because of that or, or a terrorist attack. So the statute then later, uh, 20 U.S.C. 1098, defines affected individual 
to be an individual who, A, is serving on active duty during a war or military operation uh, or national emergency, B, National Guard, C, resides or is employed in an area that is declared a disaster area by any federal, state, or local official and connected with a national emergency, or D, suffered direct economic hardship as a direct result of a war or other military operation or national emergency as determined by the secretary. Okay, this is interesting. One thing to note about the statute, you know, it has this significant benefit for people in the military. Uh, that may explain something that I, that's mentioned in a number of the briefs in the case, which I kind of enjoy, which is this past uh, Congress by, you know, there was one no vote. And the no vote was a congressman who kind of misunderstood what was going on and accidentally voted no and later said, oh, I meant to vote yes. Uh, so at the time, a very popular, uncontroversial bill. But there's some language there that, uh, you know, at least you know, the theory is can be interpreted rather broadly. And it's not the military stuff. It's the, you know, emergency disaster relief aspect. Yes. So the, right. So the, I mean, if you sort of read the, the spirit of the statute or the vibe of the statute is mostly military war, et cetera. But as you get down to the, to the bottom provisions, it seems to say anybody who resides in an area that's a disaster area because of a national emergency or anybody who suffered direct economic hardship because of a national emergency COVID was a national emergency. The president declared it one. And apparently still, that's still ongoing. Well, depends on who you ask. But at least for a while it was a national emergency. Maybe it still is. And so the government says, first of all, most people receiving student loan relief reside in an area that was declared a national emergency, namely anywhere in the United States. And the only people that would not are people you know, with U.S. student loan debt who moved abroad. Yeah. But they get relief too, don't worry, because they still qualify as having been suffered direct hardships by from COVID because it affected the whole world. So that's the idea is that, you know, while the statute is mostly about war and the military, it does say national emergency, COVID is a national emergency. We are all, in a sense, uh, soldiers in the war on COVID. And so we all are entitled to the same student relief as our, uh, as our men and women abroad. All right. And uh, importantly, uh, as I understand it, if the president uses this power, it's it's kind of unilateral authority, right? Uh, there's not a lot uh, in terms of procedural limits on the president's power to do this, uh, or the secretary's power, you know, the president acting through the secretary. Right. There are some other authorities that had been floated earlier in the student loan discussions that would have been more likely to have to go through the notice and comment process, have other kind of procedural wrinkles. And this is a, you know, because it's a national emergency sort of commander in chief style power. This one, if it applies, is you know the president gets to decide. And without going uh, too be deep, uh, too deep into those, I mean, do you have any intuition about why they chose this path? Is it because they thought it would take too long to go through notice and comment? Is it because they thought that those other procedural paths uh, weren't as strong? Well, it is one of the sources of the cynical theory that you know the administration would rather get it done quickly and lose quickly than take a long time to do it and then potentially take a long time to lose. I'm not saying that's the reason. But, but you're, you're not not saying it's the reason. Okay. So we're talking about the merits. And so the question becomes, does that allow what happened here? Is that, uh, prov- does that provide authority? And I guess there's a couple of questions there. there there's, there's a question of, you know, what does the statute say? But then there's this other kind of question, related question uh, lurking about the major questions doctrine, right? Remind us what that is. We've talked about that last season. Yeah. So the major questions doctrine, which recently graduated from being a series of cases to become a doctrine in Western versus EPA, says that when statutes are ambiguous, we should assume they weren't intended to give 
executive branch's authority over major questions. Big, big stuff. Big stuff. Uh, elephants don't hide in mouse holes. The court used this recently in cases about the EPA's authority over climate change, in two COVID cases about the CDC's eviction moratorium and uh, the Department of Labor, OSHA's uh, mask uh, vaccine mandate. There are other cases sort of tracing back into earlier years, but there, you know, it's a little bit of a kind of skepticism of these broad delegations to the administrative state. And Justice Gorsuch has also said he really sees this as kind of the doctrine that's designed to help the non-delegation doctrine. But in general, we should be skeptical of all this delegation to agencies on constitutional grounds. And so at a minimum, we should require a clear statement before Congress does something unconstitutional so that we can really put them on the record. That's what they're doing. So it's, you know, it's kind of a thumb on the scale, even if maybe, maybe even if the better statutory argument is in one direction, this would potentially push it in the other direction. That's right. It's also supposed to originally just kind of capture the point that like, sure, if you look just at the, you know, a couple of words and say, well, is COVID a declared national emergency? Yes. Are all 50 states the area where the national emergency was declared? Yes. Like, it's also supposed to capture the sense that like, but really the statute that passed unanimously in the context of, you know, the, the wind down of the war in Iraq is like actually this just sort of massive ability to open up the, to open up the treasury. It seems weird. Although you never know. I mean, it may be that just, you know, the things that, that pass are vague, right? They're, you know, nobody can agree on anything. They're, they, they want to maybe just let, leave these questions unresolved. And if that result of that is it ends up giving a certain amount of power to future administrations and flexibility, so be it. So, you know, you, you could believe in one or not the other. You could, you could just say we don't need to get into major questions because uh, you think that the government loses uh, on the text. Just starting out at the outset talking about the merits, I, you know, we talked about this a little bit. Uh, I think we both think that, you know, whatever the right answer is, uh, the government has some work to do here, right? The, the government is kind of coming from behind uh, here. And that if the court uh, is likely to reach the merits of the statutory question, it's maybe hard to believe the government is going to win. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, so for the government to win, you first have to accept that that national emergency, you know, includes COVID, even though last fall the president told us that COVID is over. And even though in the other COVID emergency context, the Title 42 so-called border control policies, the administration has declared the emergency is going to be over in May and is ending those. So you have to kind of be a reach on the national emergency question. You then have to sort of further reach on some of the phrases like modify, which sometimes uh, the court has said is supposed to convey something more limited than you know, massively abrogate and upend or things like that. And then I think that you have to get over the major questions doctrine problem too. So you have to say in addition to these phrases, you know, we have to, you know, even read in context, we have to assume that. It's not a major question or if it is a major question, we think it's clear enough. Yeah. And then I actually think the biggest problem is that the statute itself says that the the purpose of the waiver authority is to make sure that affected individuals are not placed in a worse position financially in relation to their financial assistance because of their status as affected individuals. And the Office of Legal Counsel, which issued an opinion sort of about the program, said the program is fine so long as you're giving relief to people that's not that's not a windfall, right? That's that's people who's who economically suffered because of the pandemic and you know otherwise and, and are not being made any better off than they were beforehand. And that is definitely true of some people who are receiving student loan relief, right? The economy went through all sorts of, of weird phases. Some people have lost their jobs, their ability to work. You know, there are lots of people who've suffered. 
But there are also lots of people who whose you know paychecks did not suffer, right? Who were able to continue to work and work from home, who are still you know at a stage where the it's hard to say that they are ten or twenty thousand dollars worse off because of the national emergency. And currently, the program makes no effort to figure out who's in which category, and just grants relief across the board. Yeah. Although the statutory language doesn't clearly require that. It just says it's supposed to ensure that people are not placed in a worse position financially. That doesn't necessarily rule out the possibility that some people can be placed by the program into a better position, right? Well, it says he can waive or modify any provision as necessary to ensure that they're not in a worse position. So if you're going for not actually ensuring that. It's not necessary to ensuring that if you go further than that. Yeah. I guess so how much scrutiny do we do we Uh, put in that word? Yeah, the SG says ensure. Ensure means we get to be really, really sure. So if we're not sure what's going on, we should win all the ties and anything near a tie. But I think at that point, and, and maybe it's the cumulative effect of all these things, the cumulative effect of kind of is this really the right kind of emergency? Is there still an emergency? Is this really what the statute's supposed to do? And then even when you get to this, the the argument that this is that this is tenable just kind of runs out. Okay. Is there more to say about that? I mean, I think that, you know, rather than get into a back and forth, I mean, it seems like stop with the predictive claim, right? I mean, I think that I agree uh, that for the reasons you've gone through, it's, it, it's not great to be the government. Anything else? I mean, there is kind of a, there's also sort of, you know, an argument that what the government did is arbitrary and capricious. You know, they didn't that's not that consider stuff. I think that's not, that's I, not what I can suppose that on the, on the merits, do you think it would be crazy or lawless or obviously motivated by something other than the law if the court were to say this exceeds the statute? Do I think it would be crazy or lawless to for the, for the court to agree with the challengers on the statute? No, I'm not okay. going to say that. I, right. think that. I think that it's a plausible. The challenge plausible is plausible. Argument. Yes, the challenge okay. is plausible. I won't, I won't ask you to yeah. go further than that, but. I'm not, even, I'm not even sure I have a strong view that going further than that. Um, but I think that, you know, we, we looked at the text. I mean, I think that there are arguments that are plausible for why this this you know, does exceed uh, authority, especially if you take the the court's recent case law for granted, right? If you you know buy into major questions or at least accept that as a as a fixed point. Sure. I mean, I happen to think I was pretty skeptical of some of the earlier cases. I thought the CDC and the Department of Labor had better arguments than the court gave them credit for, but this one, <laughs> boy, <laughs> I, I don't see how the. Yeah, and so you're putting this in a larger context of what the Biden administration has been doing, you know, trying to take kind of bold action and then letting itself get smacked down by the court. And I'm saying this one might be a bigger reach than the ones they've already lost. Yeah. I mean, does that uh, does that reinforce your kind of cynical theory that maybe they, they felt like they got some mileage out of those earlier, earlier losses? It's not my cynical theory. Well, it's, <laughs> it's not not. <laughs> it's just a cynical theory. Okay. Yeah. All right. So... If we get to the merits, this court, fairly good chance, will say this is illegal. You know, I think if I had to call it, I'd say, you know, this this has the feel of a 6-3, uh, 6-3 case, you know, I, that is going to kind of divide the court on party lines. Maybe it, you know, shouldn't. But, you know, we are we are at a point where there's certain cases I feel like you can just kind of call that, that they are going to end up with that valence. And maybe, you know, maybe it's for purely legal reasons, like the different, um, you know, interpretive approaches that the different sets of justices bring to the table are, you know, logically going to lead to that result. But it does seem like we can kind of call those cases sometimes. The, the last time I think I confidently claimed the Supreme Court would have a unanimous statutory interpretation case, it was that foreign sovereign immunities case where everybody yelled at Lisa Blatt and it was clear that I was totally wrong about that. So I'll, I'll go with you this time. Okay. 
let's see what happens. Okay. But so those are the stakes, right? If, if the court is going to get to the merits of this case, you know, let's call it 80, 90% that they're, they're going to say it's illegal. They may not get to the merits though. Why? All right. This is where the case gets interesting, right? <laughs> Article three standing. So one of the fundamental principles of the separation of powers is that courts, including the Supreme Court, only resolve constitutional issues if there's a case or controversy that falls in the judicial power. And one of the things the Supreme Court said about that in the past 50 years is that means that the person who's suing has to have you know, the right kind of, of injury, the right kind of legal claim. They have to have standing. And I think, and I wrote an amicus brief with uh, my friend and co-author, Sam Bray, that there's no standing in these cases. That there's obviously no standing for the people. And I don't think anybody's going to take that claim seriously. And the states, I think there's no standing for them either. That's a more interesting question, but... Will you just quickly do the the, the standing argument that you think no one's going to take seriously? Just explain that. So these, yeah. are, these are the individuals who you know, are mad that other people got relief. Yeah. So one of the core principles of standing is that your injury has to connect to the relief you're seeking. So if your injury is that you wanted to be included too, then your relief shouldn't be that nobody gets it. You should be asking for some kind of relief in which you get the thing that you're complaining about, right? Yeah, I mean, but there are contexts in which that's not true, right? In in kind of uh, gender discrimination cases involving federal statutes. So, for specific constitutional rights to be free from discrimination, the court has occasionally said the injury is not just whether or not you get money, but the injury is being treated unequally. So, there are occasionally cases like where the Constitution itself says, you know. We gave money to white people and not to African-Americans, and you, the African-Americans, can sue to take the money away from the white people, so that way you'll all be equal together and that will redress your injury. But that's only because there's a sort of constitutional dignity, discrimination. Kind of dignitary. Yeah. yeah. Which doesn't, doesn't work here. There's no, like, APA dignity, no. Uh, yeah. Ron will correct me on yeah, that. Yeah, that'll be a new, new theory. So the more interesting question, states. Yeah. Okay. So the states... And why can't states just like sue to say the federal government is doing something illegal? I thought that was just a thing that we allowed to happen now. Well, I see why you might think that. <laughs> there is a Supreme Court case from 100 years ago called Massachusetts versus Mellon that says that's not a thing. That says that states don't get to just sort of sue on behalf of their citizens saying the federal government is acting unconstitutionally. That that's something that, you know, the people in the federal government have a direct relationship. So if people are being injured, they can sue the federal government directly. So we don't allow that to happen. So states can only sue if they have their own injuries at stake. But 15 years ago, in a case called Massachusetts versus EPA, the Supreme Court, in opinion by Justice Kennedy, uh, said, you know, when states are suing, the, the Article Three thing becomes a little looser. States get what's called special solicitude in the standing analysis. The court there allowed Massachusetts to sue sort of on a relatively sort of complicated chain of causation about how the Bush administration's failure to regulate carbon was going to cause, you know, specific specific parcels of land in Massachusetts to, to go underwater. And one of the premises of your brief is uh, that was bad, right? Yeah, you you uh, are concerned about that. You uh, uh, Roman numeral two in your brief is this court should reject extravagant theories of state standing. And uh, you talk in that section about how Mass versus EPA has emboldened uh, the states and this is out of control. Right. Okay. Let's put these in three buckets. Right. So one way to think about state standing is we're the states. States are special. Federalism. We should get to sue. That is not officially the law, although it sometimes does seem to be what's going on. Uh, and there have been dozens and dozens of suits. Uh, and this is not a partisan thing, or it's not, 
it's one of these things that switches. It's like the Obama administration. It's partisan whenever it happens, but the bigger the, picture. The whole pattern is not. The Trump administration was sued by tens of states, different states. The Biden administration is pursued by tens of states. States have now staffed up these incredibly good uh, solicitor general's offices uh, with really smart lawyers who enjoy suing the government and have lots of good arguments. And, and they just pick one state to be the lead. And so in any given case, they'll be you know, basically a brief joined by like most of the blue states and a brief joined by most of the red states. Sure. Well, and sometimes they can break into a Mickey and anyway, but that's not what the states are going to actually argue. That's now the next level argument is something like, uh, sure, we're injured. This is going to have a big effect on the economy. We have an economy. Therefore, it's going to have a big effect on us. And in the, the U.S. versus Texas immigration case, that's pretty close to what Texas's standing arguments looked like, where this is about immigration, Texas is full of immigrants, therefore this affects Texas. So it's not like a super specific injury story, but it's a, it's a sort of like, surely this will have a big effect on us because we include a bunch of stuff. Then Missouri was the smart member of this coalition, introduced a, a narrower and more technical argument for standing that if the court says they have standing is the one that they might they might agree with. We disagree with this in our brief, but it's the and, and they only need one, right? Why why is this the rule? If there's like 20, 100 plaintiffs, only one of them needs to have standing? Well, as long as one of them has standing, then there's a case and the court can hear the case. So that's the idea is like when the court is thinking, like, can we even hear this case? As long as as long as maybe the case needs to be relabeled, right? Missouri versus Biden instead of Nebraska versus Biden or Biden versus Missouri instead of Biden versus Nebraska. But like somebody is supposed to be here. It, now maybe, and we should talk about this too, maybe the difference between one state having standing and 50 states having standing should affect the remedy, right? If 50 states all have standing, a nationwide injunction actually makes sense. If only one state has standing. Yeah. So this ties back into what we were talking about uh, last time. Can I just pause you right there? If 50 states have standing, and 50 states think it's illegal, maybe a nationwide injunction. What if we think all the states have standing, but only 20 of them sue? What, what do you think the right outcome should be there? Well, I don't think you should grant relief to people who choose not to sue. Okay. Now, once you get to 20, though, you might say a, a 40% of the country injunction might be impractical. And so at some point, you might get to, get to round it up. Round up. But 40 doesn't round up to 100. Okay. But, yeah, okay. But here we might have, you know, at best, a one, in your view, a one, a one state. Yeah. So... Missouri has this uh, entity called Mohila, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, maybe, a state-created corporation that's in charge of servicing student loans. It has standing, arguably. So in general, one of the, the kind of the plaintiffs people were looking for to bring these cases were people who service student loans, who make money based on the kind of portfolio of loans they're servicing. So if the loans get forgiven, they have fewer loans to service, they lose some of their commission, and they have standing. That's a little bit of a bank shot, right? It's a little bit of like if there were a new, you know, a new land use regulation or something, would real estate agents have standing to complain their commissions are going down? But but okay, maybe. So the argument is that Mohila has standing. And because the state created Mohila, maybe owns Mohila, maybe controls Mohila, uh, and because Mohila is supposed to pay some of the money it collects to a scholarship fund owned by the state, that gives the state of Missouri standing. And your view is not that this is correct, but that this is the least incorrect. So tell us why. Why is it the least? Why is it still wrong? Okay, why is it still wrong? Mohila should sue. (laughs) Yeah, why, why, why do we think Mohila didn't sue? Well, somebody asked. Because there's so somebody asked in the lower courts, you know, 
Mohila, do you want to become a part of this suit? And so Mohila, to be clear, is a corporation with its own authority to sue and be sued. It has its own treasury, a relief against Mohila's Mohila's funds don't like run into the general fund, so it doesn't it doesn't violate Missouri's sovereign immunity. They wrote this kind of ambiguous letter saying, like, we have no uh, interest in being involved in this. I think one theory, the we'll call it the non-cynical theory, is that you know, Mohila is happy to have uh, student loans be forgiven. It's not like, it's not in this for the, it's not a predator. So it's not in this for the fees. And indeed, the extra money it makes, it's supposed to spend on scholarships to help uh, students get access to school. So it's kind of all going to the same ends, even if, even if, you know, they're not part of it. So if you imagine like a soup kitchen opens up across the street next to the state-run soup kitchen, the, the state-run soup kitchen might decide not to sue, even if there was something illegal about that. They might still say, look, it's fine. We're happy to, you know, we're happy to have other people in the business. That's the non-cynical theory. Uh, the cynical theory is that if you're in the business of servicing student loans, you really don't want the Department of Education to be mad at you because they get to make a whole bunch of discretionary choices about your bottom line. Could well be buying you off down the line. And, you know, maybe they're going to get more student loans in the future. And maybe the cynical theory would go somebody in the in Washington is putting the screws on uh, student loan servicers to try to keep this out of court. Because there are presumably other servicers who might also have... There are many exist, none have sued. So that didn't happen here. So, and tell me why why we care about this. I mean, your, your brief is interesting because it has a lot of, you know, raises a lot of concerns about, you know, if we accept this broader view of standing, bad stuff is going to happen. Well, we care about, so again, we've been talking about sort of the general and the small issue. So the General issue is separation of powers is about the courts too. Uh, so this is all separation of powers dispute, right? Nobody disputes that somebody has the power to forgive student loans. The question is who? And the merits complaint is the executive has taken the power that's supposed to go to Congress. And my fear is that two wrongs don't make a right. And that if the executive has taken the power that's supposed to go to Congress, that doesn't mean the judiciary should take power it doesn't have and sort of like ride into the party. That's just sort of forfeiting the the separation of powers principles we're supposed to care about. Are, are you worried though? I mean, there's, there's some other briefs in the case uh, on the other side that paint this, you know, image of, you know, the, the executive generally and, and, and very, um, you know, smartly using examples from both democratic and Republican administrations as sort of the president has, you know, declared himself a king in, in, in recent years and is trying to just use this aggressive uh, executive authority to do things that, the president wants to do and try to get Congress to do, but cannot. Yeah. You know, sure. Are you worried about that? Sure. I mean, I think that's true. I think that's systematically true. And again, across across different administrations. But I mean, I also think you might raise some of the same questions about the courts. You might ask, have the courts taken on a bunch of authority that maybe they weren't originally supposed to have and are also becoming a little bit like a king? And, you know, when the two kings are warring and one of the kings says, you know, that king is a usurper, so I should become the the unbound by law dictator because I will protect you unlike that other usurper. I, I don't know. I get a little suspicious. So, so you're willing to say this court is trying to become a dictator? I'll, I'll keep that quote uh, for later. Um, okay. you, said, you said that. That was your quote. Yeah. <laughs> it was a paraphrase. Can you just talk a little bit more? This is something interesting, which is you argue – that the remedy sought here actually influences the standing analysis. Like that, I thought that was, that was not an argument I was necessarily expecting to see. Well, so, so two things. So one, you know, the remedy at issue in this case is the nationwide injunction, which we've talked about before is being controversial. And so this is another case that reminds us of that. And I guess the point is 
the, the nationwide injunction problem and the standing problem are not totally unrelated. So suppose you think it's true that Mohila does kind of technically have standing, and so Missouri has Mohila-based standing. Well, the kind of relief you would issue, if this is just a lawsuit about one student loan servicer in one state who was concerned it was going to lose some business, might well be to require the federal government to compensate them for the loss of business, or maybe to require the federal government not to forgive the loans in the Mohila portfolio. It wouldn't be to not forgive any loans anywhere, including by people who are totally happy with this arrangement. Yeah, and so this this goes back to conversations we've had about departmentalism and and so forth. But like realistically, let's say we have a Supreme Court decision that says that says it's unlawful, but let's really limit the remedy here to this. Won't that just necessarily have to be followed in other contexts and that will have the same effect as a nationwide injunction against the student load cancellation? Maybe. I mean, I, I'm not sure. So most of the time, or you know, all the time now, that's sort of, that's the way the executive branch should be likely to treat a Supreme Court ruling. But it puts it in the executive branch's hands, and we might get to redesign the program again. We might get to negotiate a lot of people involved. It just it just puts a lot more on the table rather than taking it off the table. And it, and it, again, the mismatch is just sort of further evidence that something has gone wrong with Article Three. If this is enough to get a case into court that causes the entire country to move into the Supreme Court's mm-hmm. jurisdiction. But based on, you know, one servicer with one kind of somewhat uh, tenuous theory. Yeah, I mean... Not even the servicer, the yeah. state. The servicer's yeah, the not state, suing. The, the state on behalf of the servicer. Yeah, you wrote an op-ed years ago at this point uh, in the New York Times. I was afraid you'd bring this up. Sorry. And honestly, I don't even remember what the specific action was, but there was something that, uh, was it King versus Burwell, uh, where there, there was, you know, a danger that the Supreme Court was going to say something the you know, Obama's uh, administration was doing was unconstitutional or was illegal. And you wrote this piece saying, well, you know, a, a judgment only binds the parties and they should just treat it that way. And that made maybe more people mad than almost anything else you've ever written. Yeah. Right. But why do you want that to happen? Like, because, I mean, th- that argument has been used in other contexts that's very troubling. I mean, that was sort of an argument that, like, segregationists used when fighting against the Warren Court and Brown. I'm not equating no, you to them. But and it's, it's just, an yeah. argument Lincoln used when issuing passports to African-Americans after Red Scott. Yeah. I mean, because it goes to the question of the Supreme Court's authority. And I think it's a mistake to let the Supreme Court become the arbiter of all major political questions in this country. What happens in that world then – the president refuses to follow it in other contexts. It says, okay, only limited to the parties. And then it becomes like whack-a-mole, right? People keep bringing suits and maybe. And so, new- so part of the point is a lot of people might not bring suits. Like a lot of people might be fine with it. They might negotiate and work something out. In King versus Burwell, the argument was that the president was illegally providing subsidy, health insurance subsidies to people. And most people did not mind. They were happy to accept the subsidies. Maybe some people think Congress or the House should get to sue to enforce the spending clause because it's a special sort of congressional prerogative. I don't agree with that, but if you thought that, then you'd say at least like that's the solution is we have to go through a sort of a different institutional litigant. I do think that if the uh, program is unlawful, the next administration might be able to collect on the loans and say the forgivenesses are invalid. I'm not sure they would, but I'm not sure they wouldn't. So it's like a range of possibilities. So, and this goes a little bit to your jurisdiction stripping article, is if you see these things as sort of like all or nothing, like either the Supreme Court gets to resolve it or not. Then, then it sounds like I'm just talking crazy talk. But if you see the system as kind of a lot more back and forth where people make claims or in the shadow of these big legal claims, but like some of them work and some of them don't. So it depends on the facts and it depends on what you're suing over and it depends on whether Congress has enacted jurisdiction stripping legislation or something else and things have changed. Things just move in a much more orderly, nuanced way. Yeah. 
but it may, you know, it certainly would be a, a system in which there would be sort of much more lingering uncertainty over a much longer period of time for better or for worse. Yeah. I mean, I think what it means is that if everybody gets on the same page, then there's no lingering uncertainty. And if the branches are still, this is the thing, this is the hill that I want to die on, then there's more uncertainty for a while. And I guess that's where we should have uncertainty is where we've decided this is the hill we want to die on. Yeah. So there's a lot of amicus briefs uh, in the case, uh, in addition to yours, and we can't uh, talk about them all, but there is one on the other side, uh, in support of the challengers, uh, in this case, filed by my former co-clerk and former Wisconsin Solicitor General, Misha Saitlin, among other lawyers, on behalf of the Empire Center and the Government Justice Center, which are organizations I've never heard of, but I think, you know, go around saying that, you know, stuff President Biden does is unconstitutional and illegal. I wrote a blog post about this brief and I called it the Empire Justice Center, <laughs> which apparently is also an institution. And so then the Empire <laughs> Justice Center emailed me to tell me they were not the same thing as the Empire Center. <laughs> so I feel bad about that. So my favorite heading in this brief is 2C. The approach that certain amici, <laughs> that's me, urge would lead to a separation of powers calamity with no justification in Article 3's text, structure, or original meaning. That sounds really bad. Calamitous. Yeah. So what is the calamity that, that's being claimed? Uh, I think the big calamity is the thing you refer to, that the executive branch across both parties is regularly exceeding any plausible bounds of its power. And if we don't let the states, let the Supreme Court stop it, nobody will. And you're okay with that. Sometimes we have to accept that. Sometimes there's going to be someone who, someone in the system who is exceeding their authority and maybe there's nothing another branch can do about it. Sometimes. I mean, again, in, in this case, a part of our argument in this case is it's not that nobody can do something about it. It's that you should find the person who is the most directly connected to it and they get to decide whether to sue. That that ability to sue includes the ability not to sue. But so it's, it's more like, I don't think that every time the executive branch violates a statute that like the little red light should go on and the Supreme Court should like you know, immediately need to ride in, or, I don't know, the bat signal or whatever, shouldn't go on, uh, and force the Supreme Court into micromanaging every legal violation by the executive branch. Yeah. So any other things you want to say about that brief in response? Given It's really it is a kind of a direct attack uh, on yours, which, you know, I think shows that, you know, people think that your brief, you know, there's some good arguments there. And uh, I noticed the government cites you in its reply brief, kind of seemingly endorsing some of the arguments you made uh, on standing. Well, I do note, so sad about this, that I think on the government side of the case, our brief was the only one that you might describe as sort of clearly contrary to type. There are a lot of there are a lot of briefs by the usual suspects in support of their claims, and ours is the only one. And ours even begins uh, by saying that we think the program is totally unlawful, but there's no standing anyway, for which we've gotten a lot of flack. But maybe from, that's from the secret conservative network. Uh, no, and the yeah. and the people we're supposedly yeah. helping. I yeah. think some people might say, you know. With friends like these. Yeah. Who needs friends? <laughs> Some other interesting uh, briefs. Uh, there's a brief filed by, you know, the former judge you clerk for, Michael McConnell, William Barr, a bunch of other kind of legal conservative luminaries. Um, that's not uh, a standing brief. That's kind of a, a merits brief, which is doing a lot of historical work and saying it's really, really important to let Congress and not the president control spending because of all these historical conflicts uh, between parliament and the king and how dangerous this is. Yeah, it's sort of, I mean, it, it, what it's really doing is making an argument for why should there be a clear statement rule for spending statutes like the major questions doctrine, but not the major questions doctrine. So it's sort of almost a separate problem that uh, 
that the Treasury is doubly protected in the Constitution. Congress has the appropriations power, and then Article One specifies again: no money can be taken out unless it's appropriated, and suggests you know this is a principle that needs to be taken. Yeah, because here you're not you're not exactly like taking money out; you're just preventing money from coming in, right? Yeah, although I think everybody agrees that counts. Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, actually, a bunch of statutes governing budgetary authority, governing all sorts of budget shenanigans, that's part of why when there's a government shutdown, they actually have to shut some stuff down. They can't just be like, well, whatever, you know, I'm going to waive it all because it's a national emergency or something. Any other briefs uh, you want to talk about? Uh, I think that's all. There's, there's a lot here. And, you know, there's a lot of people coming in and saying, you know, Resolve it on standing, you know, or let's not address standing and let's, you know, the brief will just talk about the merits. The court will have to decide, obviously, at least one of those. If it, if it you know, disagrees with you on standing, it will decide the merits. If it agrees with you on standing, uh, the merits will disappear. I was talking to you earlier and you sort of said, yeah, probably uh, what's going to happen is the court will say that Mohila has standing and then reach the merits. Do you still believe that? I do believe that. And why do you believe that? You know, just because you think that your brief was just not quite persuasive enough or you just think there's too much gravitational force uh, for the court in wanting to decide this issue, seeing the, the president is acting unlawfully. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, just, I'm just reading the room. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a general problem that the court's got to confront at some point which is sort of the problem of unilateral disarmament and tit-for-tat. So if you're a conservative justice who thinks standing is real and who thinks that Massachusetts versus EPA was a big problem, you know, a part of you thinks, like, well, they decided Massachusetts versus EPA, like, they deserve what's coming to them, right? But you can only get by on that principle for so long, right? Like, at some point, you have to ask, is this really how you want to spend the rest of your rest of your life. So that's what makes me think there might be justices who are nervous about the unchecked expansion of state standing and and who don't totally relish their new job as super OIRA reviewing everything the administrative state does. But is this the case where they're going to where they're going to call that the fa- the weakness of the of the executive's position on the merits, the political shenanigans involved don't make this the case that you're like hoping to use as your as your principled case. And then Mohila makes it easy to decide this one without having to. Okay, so so last uh, question. We also uh, talked about this a little bit offline. I mean, do you think? Do you see a world in which there's about to be kind of a renaissance? You know, a kind of pro-plaintiff movement in standing law, given how strong conservative majority is, that they might feel like, yeah, let people sue, and we'll say, you know, democratic stuff is illegal, and we'll uphold uh, Republican stuff. You know, not consciously, but you know. Could you see movement kind of more in that direction, more kind of people in the kind of, you know, writing these kinds of briefs, pushing in favor of broader, broader standing principles? I mean, maybe. Certainly, I mean, we, we've talked about we see that sort of like shift in a lot of phenomena. That said, let's just do a cynical version again. If you're the Supreme Court and you think, you know, we're going to be in relatively conservative hands for a very long time, but the lower courts, you know, some of them are pretty dicey then you might want standing doctrine as an efficient way to keep a bunch of cases out of the courts. And, and not have to deal with them all yourself. Right. Because if the, I don't know, the Fourth Circuit and the D.C. Circuit or whatever are relatively liberal courts, if you have very broad standing rules, then you've got to grant a ton of cases from those circuits all the time to, to stop them. And the court doesn't like to grant cases anymore. It's trying to get its docket down to like 21 cases in the shadow docket. So it doesn't work very well. Okay, parting parting thoughts. You know, you're you're prepared well, to. I feel like you've been cagey about your own views. I feel like I've been, you know, you've been you've been asking me. So, do you do you they're standing? Uh, I was really persuaded by uh, your arguments and by some of the arguments, but I, you know, I'm I'm kind of primed 
to be, right? It's kind of overdetermined here in that I'm going to be a little bit more receptive to what the Biden administration is doing. And then I have, I can, I can say, well, you know, my conservative friend has, has told me that it's everything that they, they can't sue. And so it's, of course, I'm going to believe that. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I do have a kind of sense of, you know, does this really matter? I mean, because don't you think it's possible that, you know, what happens the day after that decision is maybe Missouri legislature goes and amends things and orders, you know, orders Mohila to sue, or, you know, maybe the governor can do that, or there's some indirect means by which the governor can do that. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't think a no standing decision will mean that nobody's ever going to opine on the legality of this program. Um, but later, it might be a different set of relief. I don't know. Things, I mean, things do change. All right. So we want to save a little bit of time for maybe a couple of audience questions, if there are any. To do that, it's going to be a little complicated. We've got two microphones uh, you're going to need to use, one that goes into the recorder and the other that goes to the room. So if you want to have a question, come up to the front and we will set you up with our mic situation. Hey, good evening. Uh, My name is uh, Ryan McLaughlin. I'm a 2L here. I was curious, based on the statutory language, if you thought, because the Biden administration froze student loan payments if that would come into consideration when they're trying to analyze if uh, these affected individuals are in a worse off position. Yeah. So this is one of the administration's better arguments is, look, we've been freezing student loan payments for years, and so is the Trump administration, and nobody's complaining about that. And this is just that, but a lot more, right? Now, I don't think anybody's actually conceding that those were lawful. So it's not... you know, I'm sure it'll be a focus of oral argument. It's like, well, was that lawful? And so it's different from... It's harder to say that it isn't, given that presence of two administrations. Yeah. But it also depends on which arguments you go to. So it's like easier, you know, it's easier to say the pandemic wasn't over then than it is to say it is now. And it's easier to say there would be fewer of the big windfall problems then than now. So I think there are distinctions. But, but some of the arguments, like this is a statute for the military, not for COVID, would apply to the pause too, and that's going to be an awkward point with challengers. And, and just to clarify, uh, part of the question was, does that bear on the kind of necessary argument? Because you could say, well, you don't need this, folks. During the pandemic, they got they got plenty of relief. Is that is it sort of the argument? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that will definitely play into it. The, the government will say part of the problem is we paused things for so long. We were like, at some point, we got to get people paying again. But we realistically think lots of people are not used to paying, and they're going to be surprised when they suddenly have to pay. But they've, they've started spending on, on other stuff. You know, they're not going to be willing to cut back. Okay. Uh, looks like we have one more. So thanks for coming. And uh, my name is Scott Montgomery. I'm a 2L. My question is about the injury component of standing. So my understanding is that a monetary damage would typically be enough to convey standing to an individual. So I'm curious why that uh, is different for a state. And then you brought up briefly uh, Massachusetts v. Um, EPA. And so, you know, to me, I, f- I feel like a monetary damage could potentially be seen as more concrete, you know, than receding shorelines. So, you know, what would make this come out differently? So I think it's right that that money is an injury and so is losing your, sh- your shoreline. And the part of the issue in this case is not just that, but like, is the money itself, you know, are we even sure Missouri is on net going to lose money rather than gain money? And is the how how much can we trace the money to like a the specific claim of unlawful action? I mean that's where some of the states want to say, look, again, we we have a big economy, we have lots of stuff going on. Surely this will affect us. Sort of like Massachusetts want to say, look, we have a lot of coastline. Surely this affects us, even if we can't pinpoint it. But usually in standing, we ask for for a little more than that. So normally, you know, if the if the government passes some bill and I think it's going to cause inflation, 
Uh, I can't just sue and say, like, this is going to cause inflation. Inflation involves money. Therefore, I can sue. I need to do more to distinguish the, the harm to me sort of more directly. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for Federal Society for uh, bringing Will down to uh, indoctrinate young minds. Although I note, I note that they brought you here and then you actually argued for the liberal result in this important case. So Federal <laughs> Society, uh, Leonard Leo uh, is going to want his money back. But, you know, thanks for listening. Please rate and review, subscribe to the show, check out our website, dividedargument.com. And we will keep doing these. I think they're going to start. The pace is going to pick up soon as the opinions start coming out. And uh, I'm hoping this will be our most successful and, and busiest uh, season yet. This is our third season. Can you believe that? No. Yeah. It's, it's almost our, I think maybe our second anniversary because we started kind of halfway through the term uh, two years ago. Okay. Yeah. Thanks to the Washi community for all coming out. Thanks for having me. <laughs>